You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why ProPlan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Welcome to the Ducks Unlimited podcast, the only podcast about all things waterfowl. From hunting insights to science-based discussions about ducks, geese, and issues affecting waterfowl and wetlands conservation in North America, we bring the resource to you. The DU Podcast with your host, Dr. Mike Brazier. Today, we are continuing and we're actually concluding our three-part series of a conversation with Dr. Phil Lovretsky, Assistant Professor at the University of Texas, El Paso, and Ducks Unlimited's Chief Scientist, Dr. Tom Mormon, about genetics in the mallard complex, genetics in, in mallards in North America. And today, we're actually going to be talking about something that just in recent has, has come to light in recent years with specific uh, application to what's going on with mallards in the eastern U.S. And so let me just take the time now to welcome back Phil and Tom to the to the podcast. Thanks, Mike. Good to be back. Thank you. I'm excited. When we left off, well, again, I have to do this. I uh, have, re- have to encourage listeners before I even introduce what we're going to talk about today. I have to remind our listeners to go back and listen to episodes uh, one and two of this, uh, of this three-part series because there's some great background information that you're probably going to want to uh, hear. So in, in this particular episode, though, uh, we are going to, as I mentioned, turn our attention strictly to Eastern Mallards. We left off in episode two with, uh, with Phil having, having given us some details about research that they conducted to look into the genetic relatedness and hybridization between mallards and black ducks. And in that process, they, they identified a couple of a couple of unique signatures, genetic signatures for mallards, which uh, which they did not expect. So, Phil, I'm going to let you pick up uh, right there. Tell us kind of where your mind was when you began to get the results, when you began to interpret the data, and you started seeing these two signatures. Kind of what was your mindset? What type of, as a scientist, you immediately go to, to, to start thinking about uh, explanations, answers for this particular question, this problem that you're seeing. What were some of the things that were first coming to mind? And then how did you go about figuring out what was happening? In episode two, we talked about that 2019 paper about black ducks and mallards. And, you know, that, the, the main question was really, hey, are, are there any American black ducks out? And uh, if not, where, if so, it, uh, what kind of hybridization is there? If not, you know, I guess they're all hybrids, but lo and behold, American black ducks doing fairly well. There's still genetically pure black ducks out there, but on the mallard side, we, uh, we started to see some interesting patterns and they truly contrasted against black ducks. So black, um, a pure American black duck from Mississippi flyway, Atlantic flyway, genetically the same thing, right? They assign to a single population. They, they, they carry all the same information. There, there isn't like stocks in them or anything like that. They're, they're one in another. That means there's interbreeding, clear interbreeding between the, between those regions of, of black ducks. Now the genetic signature that we found from West to East in mallards was highly unique. So just like the black ducks in Western mallards, 
So everything west of the Mississippi River, prairie paddles all the way to Alaska, were a single unit that we called Western Mallards. Uh, but as you moved into the Mississippi Flyway and into especially the Atlantic Flyway, all of a sudden there, my analyses kept suggesting that there's this secondary mallard or secondary population in our mallards, right? The, there was genetics from some distinct lineages, lineage that I don't have at the time. And again, the only way for you to be a hybrid is mom and dad must have been of two different stock in, in, one, in one way or another. And again, just going back to anybody that's done Ancestry 23 and Me, if you were a complete Eastern European like me, you would just have one single, all your chromosomes assigned to a single lineage of Eastern European, whatever. If you were in North America and you were a European that came here, you probably have a bit of everything from everywhere. And that's what we were finding in, in these mallards that we've got these, a li- not a little bit, there's quite a bit, almost equal proportion in, in most of the birds in the Atlantic flyway of these two unique lineages in them, this genetics in them. And of course, I had to go and refresh myself on the history of the Atlantic Flyway and how mallards even got in there to, to really be like, well, what the hell is this? What, what is this lineage? To begin to ask the question, to even think about, okay, what, what, in, what other uh, sampling schemes do we need to really, to really get after this question? And if, I don't know if, you're, if the listeners know about this, but actually mallards were a uh, were were something of a cinnamon teal in the Atlantic coast. They were a rare vagrant event, you know, even up to like the 1940s or so. But up to the 1920s, there were really no mallards. And in the 1920s, people said, hey, you know, people, folks in the Atlantic flyway said, hey, we want mallards too. And so there were, there were, there were really two ways of getting after this. Uh, they could either bring in mallards uh, from somewhere else or they could breed mallards. And lo and behold, in the 1920s, what they started to do is captive breeding of, of captive bred mallards, of domestic mallards in the Atlantic Flyway. Basically, pen-raised mallards, releasing them for hunting season. And this isn't just like uh, private individuals as it is right now, but it was states, some, of the, some, some years federal money, uh, and of course, still private individuals, but they were releasing somewhere between 500,000 plus birds of these captive bred mallards every single year from 1920 to about 1960. At that same time, we've all heard this story of uh, uh, the boreal forests of the of the of Ontario uh, and some uh, of Quebec starting to get cut down, kind of looking like the prairie potholes, and these western mallards starting to creep into this area. So. What you had were these potentially two very distinct stocks of mallards now increasing in abundance in a place where there were no mallards in the area at the time. And of course, uh, uh, by the 1960s, the mallard increased by 600%, you know, their populations, at least this is what's stated. Uh, and there were viable, uh, you know, breeding mallards now everywhere from Alaska to to uh, um, uh, to Maine uh, and to New Brunswick and so forth. So, Phil, we basically have mallards coming to the east through through two different avenues is what you're saying. Two different mechanisms, yeah. Okay, one's coming from the west. These are just wild birds that are expanding to the east, uh, mid-continent prairie birds. And then the other were mallards that were that were being deliberately introduced, right? Right. And, and the assumption here, and it, actually it wasn't an assumption. You can go back to records. Uh, uh, they tried to breed wild North American mallards in, uh, for this captive 
for these captive flocks, but they didn't take. They were wild mallards, right? You weren't getting the production value that you would like off a chicken. Uh, they did the same thing. They tried with black ducks. Black ducks were even worse in captivity than, 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 than mallards. And then somebody at some point in the 1920s had the, had the forethought that said, I think the Europeans figured it out <laughs> and, and went off. Uh, I'm just going to say went off on the Titanic uh, <laughs> and got to Europe. No, uh, they went and got a whole bunch of captive bred birds that have been, you know, basically perfected by Europeans where we're actually going to be able to answer this in a future study here soon. Uh, but they went to Europe and so, you know, somebody got some birds, brought them back, started breeding them. Obviously the Europeans probably bred them for, I don't know how many years they, they basically got that perfect little flighty bird about, you know, eight to 900 grams, maybe like a Widgeon Gadwell size bird, nice flighty, something that you can feed Purina Chow year round and get hundreds of eggs off of that doesn't care about her eggs. And the males are overly aggressive so you can breed them longer. So those are the traits that, the, that these captive bred birds, that these captive bred birds have. And they were, and those traits are really great in a domestic setting. Yeah, and why were the Europeans, why had they perfected this? What were they using those birds for? Oh, for the same thing, shooting. Okay, so shooting preserves. So, so, so the Europeans started ahead with the shooting preserves and they needed stock for those, okay. Yeah, I mean, besides besides pheasant, you know, pheasant tower shoots, they were do, they've been doing, um, you know, mallard flighted tower shoots for a long time. I'd have to go and actually look it up, but I'm, uh, I mean, I'm sure, you know, King Henry V liked to shoot a mallard. And, and so, yeah, they've been doing it for a long time and they were specifically selecting these flocks for to be flighty and fun to shoot, um, you know, traits that, that folks wanted here as well. And so, so under that idea, I said, okay, we already have our wild counterparts. We know that there's wild mallard in the Atlantic Flyway in Mississippi, but what is this other signature? Given the history of mallards in North America, I knew I had to go and get game farm mallards, known game farm mallards. On top of that, we also, you know, are taught that, you know, park ducks, your rowan ducks, khaki campbells, a variety of whatever people create, turned the mallard into. I guess I could think, I guess you could think of the mallard as like a wolf and all these other breeds of dogs. Right. People just like selected puffy, puffy heads and puffy tails and fat butts and all this. And like, you know, you got your Chihuahuan versions of the mallard and you've got your like uh, fat. I don't know what if uh, I guess a really overweight Labrador versions of a mallard. And so you've got you've got the gamut, but they're all mallards. It's just people selecting for different traits. Yeah, I don't think we'll be able to look at mallards the same going forward now that you've got you put them in that category. <laughs> yeah. I think a Labrador mallard is going to be really confused. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so we we did we, we that's when I I knew what the next step was. Uh and we I said, "Okay, we're going to need to get game farm mallards and and to do so we need to find those areas that, you know, uh have large game farm preserves and places that we can get it. And we were able to get it from three different places in a place in New Jersey. Luckily when we were in Kentucky learning how to bleed birds and we were catching some black ducks and mallards for, again, for the study sort of, uh, we were, we were able to go to a kennel where they have, uh, uh, mallards for release for, to train, train dogs. We were able to get those, the blood from there. So those are other types of game, you know, it is a game farm mallard, uh, but used for dog training rather than I guess just shooting. 
And then we got some birds out of South Carolina. So all the three of those were kind of our reference game farm mallards. Not only did that allow us to test whether all these, ma- all these game farm mallards are the same origin and the same thing, but also see like, well, which, which ones might be on out there. And I have to, I have to clarify that I didn't think of this before because I was under the guise that potentially you guys were under or the dogma that game, I knew game farm mallards existed, but I was under the, uh, under the thought that a game farm mallards get shot. If they don't get shot, they sure as hell don't leave the, the pond they were thrown out of. And if they just so happen to leave that pond, they will definitely 100% not breed in the wild. And that was the thought that's been in my head. And that's why I never even like contemplated too hard about like, well, you know, maybe this is a problem and I should get samples earlier on. That's the same way that that um, that I kind of understood the situation. I, I know there was some early work in here in North America to do some mallard releases, and those were a colossal failure. You know, I should exclusive of excluding what you're you're talking about here. But in other parts of North America, there were some attempts to raise and release mallards. You know, as a way to replace the number of birds that were shot uh, from you know wild free ranging populations. And I think all the studies that were conducted on those, and even some more recent studies, maybe within the past twenty five or thirty years showed incredibly low survival for those birds and we thought well there's possible no possible way that that's a that that's a, a you know a viable way to support waterfowl population so yeah absolutely no yeah that that's that's the thought i was under so so okay so we got those but on top of it i said okay what we really need to do potentially the atlantic flyway has always been like this and maybe the atlantic flyway always had a mallard of some strange origin and really that the Western mallard interbred with this Atlantic flyway mallard that once once was or something like that. So what, what we did to do that is we went back in time. How did we do that? Thankfully, there's been duck hunters since, uh, since people evolved. Thankfully, lots of folks like to shoot ducks throughout time. And thankfully, a bunch of museums have ducks across time. So the Smithsonian, I partnered with uh, my colleagues at, at the Smithsonian, Helen James and Rob Fleischer there. Um, and what we were able to do is get mallards from across North America. And we did the same thing for black ducks because we wanted to ask that question. Well, is today's black duck the same thing as before? So we got black ducks and mallards from eight, dating from 1860 to 1915. So these are birds uh, that existed on the landscape prior to the release the dated release of game farm mallards on, on the landscape. And we were able to do this because there's the, the, what we call, this is called the world of ancient DNA. So it's all fancy. Um, but, but basically it's a, a really clean lab, you know, CSI style, uh, clean lab where you're, where you're working with, you know, really minute amount of DNA and, and uh, new, these brand new techniques that allow us to take as long as there's some DNA in, the, in, these, in these very old uh, historical samples in this case, then we're able to fish them out. We're able to get them with these new techniques. And so that allows, So this new data set has not only the game farm mallards as our reference, but also allowed us to get after uh, this, this question of, hey, is today's mallard the same thing as before? So Phil, do I remember correctly, you talked about this ancient DNA that you got this tissue sample from uh, from the, the feet 
of the ducks and that were in the museum. Is that right? Yep. Yeah. So we went to the Smithsonian and uh, we they they've got all these birds cataloged. Um, and what we what we went out and we got the webbing and we just did a small tiny hole punch in one of the webs and took that little tiny piece of webbing tissue. And from that, we were able to get actually really good DNA uh, with these new techniques. Um, and again, these are 100, 100 to 150 year old about uh, uh, specimens being sitting at the Smithsonian. If the, if there weren't duck hunters in 1860s and 1915, we wouldn't have these specimens. I guess also on top of that, no Smithsonian. So I am thankful that not only not only were there duck hunters, but there were there, you know museums exist with this type of data that that you never know what techniques going to come out that can benefit from that. And that, and we're benefiting from it by having this, this timestamp that we can then compare to today. So what did you learn through this process and through the analyses? Yeah. What did we learn? So let's get to the punch. So let's get to the first analysis, which is of our, our data set from 2019 uh, compared to mallards and black ducks and comparing that to our reference game farm mallards from, from New Jersey, Kentucky, and South Carolina, as well as park ducks that we caught in, in New Mexico. I forgot to reference that because we wanted to make sure we had that. Potentially, it could be park ducks that are, are, are the problem, are the hybridization problem. And now these park ducks are separate from the game farm ducks, right? Well, we wanted to test that too, right? We, we don't know. We didn't know. So what did we find? That second mallard signature is not some wild Atlantic flyway mallard. It's not some European wild mallard that came somehow made its way all the way across the Atlantic flyway and with enough number to hybridize. It is game farm mallards. It is game farm mallards being released today that are the same exact. So they're a single genetic unit and that genetic unit is the intermix, the other non-Western mallard genetic signature I find in the Mississippi and especially in the Atlantic flyway. All of the mallards, uh, the game farm mallards from New Jersey, Kentucky, and South Carolina identify as a single unit, meaning they come from the same stock. And this trends well with this idea that probably a few, it's only a few individuals got a few birds propagated and then within North America sold and raised that same lineage through time. So that, 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 that was the biggest light bulb. It was, it wasn't park duck because park duck actually. So we had what, what we phenotypically figured out were khaki Campbell's that somebody released in the same area. We were banding Mexican ducks and wild mallards, just khaki Campbell's there. And they were a, a very distinct uh, genetic lineage from game farm or wild North American mallards. And so, and we didn't find that in our hot, in this, these Atlantic flyway mallards. What we found was a combination of game farm and wild North American mallard. So they are hybrids of the two. That's what the Atlantic flyway is essentially was or is. And the beauty was just looking at pure numbers of, you know, we randomly collected individuals from the, from the wing bee. So it's kind of a random assessment of, of the population of what people are shooting. And during that time, that was the 09-10 hunting season when we collected them. Based on our calculations, there was only 8% of the mallards of the Atlantic flyway did not have substantial introgression, as you would put it, as you put it earlier, or gene flow or hybridization. So they were actual wild mallard, North American mallards. Eight, only 8% of them were pure, essentially. 
uh, 92% of all the mallards in the Atlantic flyway were not. Wow. So these birds are, are collected, uh, would have been collected during the hunting season. So it would represent a time of year when you've got some mixing of birds uh, along the Atlantic flyway f- that from a variety of breeding locations. Do you, uh, so I guess a couple of questions here related to what you have found or what you might know with respect to the, the kind of geographic patterns of, of what you found. Um, do you know where those 8% of pure mallards are coming from? Let's start, uh, let me just start there. Do you know where they're coming from? Uh, no, uh, that's something that we're working on right now. Uh, getting local, local, you could say breeding mallards, uh, from not only the States. So Atlantic flyway States, Mississippi States, as well as all of the Canadian provinces. So we have that data and, uh, where are those 8%? Well, looking at migratory patterns in the Atlantic flyway, I mean, they're either for coming from really Quebec or from their own internal States. So I'm guessing it's mostly birds out of Quebec. That's, that's making up that 8% and, and again, looking at the low, I don't want to like put out too much as we continue to analyze, but the birds banded preseason in the Atlantic flyway are almost, um, I don't know, 97, 98% admixed. So meaning they have a whole bunch of wild ancestry and a whole bunch of game farm ancestry. It's a little better in the Quebec. So I'm assuming that's where the pure birds are coming from. But again, more work needs to be done and, and, and such. Uh, now, I did want to point out that as you move from the Atlantic Flyway to the Mississippi and West, you start to see a significant decline in the number of birds carrying game farm genes. It does decline, but the Mississippi Flyway already in 09-10 showed almost 45% of, of the samples we had had substantial game farm mallard introgression. Now, as you cross over to the Mississippi, cross over the Mississippi river, that declines, that, that drops all the way to like two, 3%. And so prairie pothole birds so far, mostly okay. It hasn't been increasing through since that study. Um, but, but as you move West, that signature falls off completely. So that game farm where we're finding game farm genetics is exactly where the majority of game farm releases are, which is the Atlantic flyway. So geographically, this completely makes sense uh, from a geographical standpoint. Wow. That's, I'm sure that's going to be news to a lot of our listeners, this idea that we have game farm mallards that are kind of making their, um, uh, it feels like based on your data that they're kind of gradually making their way West. Do we have any kind of temporal record to see how, uh, how the percentage of that um, that game farm mallard signature may be changing through time in different locations. That can we can we say definitively that they are moving west uh, and increasingly so? So that was actually one of the questions I had, and I went back to band recovery data. This isn't published because I keep getting squashed. Maybe because I'm working with mallards, and they're like, "What is this geneticist doing with band recovery data?" But but if you actually look at, at band recoveries since the 1960s, so the so I'm only looking at it. Let's 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 make this simple: Atlantic Flyway, U.S. born, so banded birds uh, that year, and Canadian or mallards banded in Canada preseason. Okay, so these are birds technically born and banded in Canada versus the U.S. When we compare the Canada birds from Canada, so that Canadian signal versus the U.S. signal, there's a huge disparity. So only about 5% of of, uh, uh, direct recoveries, meaning that bird was banded 
and shot recovered in the same exact year uh, or hunting season, you know, calendar year. 5% of them are recovered in uh, through time, just kind of the stability in the Mississippi flyway. The U.S. banned recoveries, those direct recoveries, have been linearly increasing through time. And the last time I analyzed it, which was again back in 2010 when I started seeing these patterns and asking the questions like, what the hell is going on? In 2010, almost 25% of the bands put out uh, by folks in the Atlantic Flyway were re- shot and recovered in the Mississippi Flyway. And this is a stark uh, difference to, to uh, uh, not only mallards that are banded at the same time in, the, in Canada, in the Canadian provinces, but also of black ducks banded, whether it's in Canada or the U.S. Only 5% of that, those bands are also recovered in the Mississippi. But U.S. banded born birds are recovered at 25%. That was almost a decade ago. Wow. So it does sound like then, yeah, pretty convincingly that maybe those birds are um, increasingly moving, moving west. So, so we know that the genetic makeup of the Atlantic flyway is very different today. But let's go back in time and see what maybe it was already messed up. Maybe it's always been messed up, right? Maybe, maybe game farm mallards were brought in with like the pilgrims and that's what was released and that's what was out there. And in that, in that case, we went to the Smithsonian and got these birds from 1860 to 1915 prior to those big releases in the 1920s and on. And lo and behold, when we compare a pure black duck today to a black duck from 1960 or 18, sorry, 1860 to 1915, identical. A pure black duck today is the same thing that's a, that was 100 to 150 years ago. That was remarkable to me, actually. I was just like, I was blown away. That means, again, what is left of the pure black duck today is, is the same as before. Whoever incorrectly bred were essentially dead ends, biological dead ends. Yes, the pot, so, so essentially the problem with hybridization during those early 60s, 70s, and 80s was really loss of, of biological output, right? The output was decreased for black ducks. When we look at the mallard, though, I have to split this up. If I look at a Western mallard, meaning a prairie pothole bird or, or West, looks identical to a mallard from 100 to 150 years ago. Identical. When you look at a mallard from the Atlantic Flyway to the mallard of 100 to 150 years ago, it's completely different. It's more different than a model duck is from a mallard, than any of these species are from each other. They're over 10% different. Uh, in the bird world, we call species at 5%. These things are genetically very distinct. They have very different histories, genetic histories. And that means they've been under very different pressures. And in the study that we did in 2020, where we put all this work together and really shined light of like, what is going on? We could, we actually found loci that are potentially that are in the Atlantic flyway that are identical to things that are in the game farm mallards that we found to be under artificial selection. So, so genes that are probably coding for these flightiness, small body, weird bills uh, that we'll touch on here in a second. So again, those genes that we find that are distinct to the, to game farm mallards that have been under domestic domestication for a very long time, are now on the landscape. And I have to point out that you had said earlier that the survival rate of domestic birds are very low. And you are absolutely correct. 
It could, but if you consider the fact that there are 500,000 birds being put out, if the survival rate was even 1% or even half a percent per year for the last hundred years, there are species out there that don't even have those kinds of numbers. Backing up here a little bit, um, and thank you for kind of doing the math there and pointing that out, that that's really where it, where you begin to see how this could happen. Uh, but when you, when you looked at these, these mallards and black ducks from 100, 150 years ago, did you compare the genetic signature of, of an Atlantic flyway mallard from 100, 150 years ago to the sig- signature of a western mallard or prairie mallard from that same time frame? And how did they, com- how did they compare? Yeah. And as you can imagine, there were, there aren't a whole lot of Atlantic flyway mallards that date to that time. The ones that we were able to obtain were, had showed no difference. They were, they were assigned to a single, it's a single unit. And in, in our world, that means that, that, that those individuals carry all the, this, the gene pool of the species of the same species. So that means they're all interbreeding equally, uh, amassing the same amount of variation and so forth through time. Um, uh, and so they're a single unit, they're a single population or, or evolutionary unit as you can, uh, or however you want to think about them. So yeah, there was no difference. There was no difference. Like we had, <clears throat> like the differences we see of an Atlantic flyaway mallard today compared to either today's Western mallards or, uh, yesteryear's <laughs> mallards. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com. Let's get back to this, this Western Mallard uh, the, the movement of these eastern mallards into the western U.S. for just a minute, and then then we're going to come back to what are the implications of this from the standpoint of the conservation management of eastern mallards, because that's a part of this story that we haven't talked much about, um, and which you kind of stumbled into as a result of this this work. Uh, so let's just talk about these. Atlantic flyway birds, these uh, part game farm birds moving into the western U.S. and potentially breeding with uh, with mid-continent mallards. Uh, is there any reason for us to be concerned about this at, the, at, uh, at this stage? Yeah, that's a, I mean, I wish I had the answer to that. Um, <laughs> I, I would side with this with a with a, the point of concern. Um just because of what we've learned from things like from fisheries particularly, but also what we, what you had touched on with bobwhite pheasant, basically anytime we try to augment uh, populations with domesticated uh, 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 cousins and it doesn't turn out so great. And there's, there's definitely reasons for that. And I, I, I want to get into that. So, yeah. So, so if we, if we look at, really any fisheries that, that is uh, stocked. So salmon, trout, lots of different things. If those things were not stocked in that, in your favorite river, your favorite pond or your favorite lake, or even in the ocean, you're probably not catching fish. And there's a reason for that. And the reason, and again, from really good genetic work was that they were finding that as individuals are in captivity, everybody gets to survive. There isn't natural selection there anymore. 
And so individuals with poor genes still get to breed because you, you know, in fisheries, you just take their sperm and egg and mix them all up and everybody gets to breed. So you're perpetuating this cycle. And what they found is in, in this really nice rainbow trout study is that within three generations of doing this, the viability of the total egg hatch drops by 50%, right? This is something that's possible. There are reasons that salmon don't figure out how, where they're going. And so you just have to constantly, constantly stock them. So they're, 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 we've got history behind us of what could happen. What is the beauty of the mid-continent prairie pothole uh, mallard is their sheer size. Getting back to our original conversation of like, well, is hybridization really a problem if you could just kind of breed it back to normal through time? What the Atlantic Flyway is, is the exact opposite of that. You lost your pure parental population in the Atlantic Flyway. All you've got are hybrids to breed with. And hybrids can only make hybrids. And so the beauty about the mid-continent population is there's a whole slew. Uh, Tom, you can correct me. I think, what, are they at least at 10 million or 11 million this year? Actually, well, this year we don't have a population survey, so we don't know. But they have been very recently, in recent years, they've been as high as 10, 11 million. Yeah. I mean, that's a whole bunch of birds to try to mess up, right? Um, so the beauty of that mid-continent is the trickling of these genes may not be strong enough and they can, what I had earlier alluded to, absorb those effects. However, if you get it, if you keep throwing birds out, and eventually continue to dilute that, that gene pool, you could, you can eventually, I mean, look at salmon or, or trout. I mean, some of those runs were in the millions at one time. Uh, you can eventually decline the population's genetic variation to the point where you're starting to get problems for sure. And we can definitely touch on the problems that these game farm mallards have compared to wild birds. Phil, I think now is, is probably a good time to do that. And, and so I know I said we're just going to go to Tom here in a minute, and I will. I'm just going to push that a little bit farther <laughs> in this conversation. There's a lot to unpack here, and I just want to make sure we get to all of it. So, yes, why does it – okay, so it looks like a mallard for the most part. I mean, it looks it, like it, a mallard. It does. It looks like a mallard. Uh, that you can, and, but you're going to tell us about some, some small differences. But then the other part is well, why is that – why does that – why does that matter? I know there's a social component to that, and I want Tom to talk about that as well. But from a biological standpoint, just talk with us uh, about some of what is known of these game farm mallards and how they differ kind of morphologically and perhaps demographically. I don't know how much of that we know, but uh, you can tell us from uh, wild mallards. Yeah. So, so what do we know? So we know that these things have been domesticated for, I don't know how many years in Europe and for sure a hundred years in, uh, in North America. So that's a lot of generations of, of, uh, eating bread, corn and large seeds or McDonald's or something, whatever they're feeding them. And like I had alluded to, once you're in a cage, you're outside the norm of natural selection. And particularly here, you're under the norm of artificial selection. So whatever people are choosing, if you're a flighty bird that has no eggs, you're still good. You know, you're still going to be bred if you can you know, and flight it out and people like that lineage or whatever. So what happens is, and again, I kind of alluded to this, is that these birds through this entire process have become more, I guess, quote unquote, sporty. They are a seven to 900 gram bird. And we have data for this as compared to a wild North American mallard that's about 11 to 1200 grams and potentially bigger, depending on where you are uh, later in the year. So you've got this smaller bird and we're, we'll get to why that's important. But 
I don't know if you've ever seen these pictures on, on, uh, you know, folks being like, look at this really fat mallard that we got in the Atlantic flyway. I think it's a, I think it's a, it's a park duck. But in fact, that little mallard next to it is actually the problem. It's the game. That's the game farm mallard. The big duck, when you compare them in size and you have a picture, you're like, wow, that thing is huge. That's actually the wild mallard probably. And not, not the problem. It's that little one that you've got right next to it. And I've got a few pictures of that. It's pretty funny. So you got this smaller bird. But more importantly is what ha- what's happened uh, to their bills. Now, remember, their bills are the first thing that, that they use to pick up food. And food is the end of all means for them. That is what, that, what they've been adapted to. That is what, how they're able to filter feed and survive, get the nutrients they need during the winter, during the breeding season, and so forth. If that bill changes and is, is no longer effective in picking up wild food resources, then, then that individual is not going to survive through the winter or through the breeding season. And what's happened to these captive bred mallards, game farm mallards specifically, is, is they've been bred. They're, no, they're not under uh, natural selection of being like, you better filter that food or you're not going to eat. They're being fed all the time. And they're being fed large seeds, not small wild seeds, but large seed, corn, whatever's cheap that, you know, millet, whatever. And, and because of that, what we're seeing in the bill are these short, stubby, more goose-like is what we, is what my colleagues have termed. And the lamella, the, the, the kind of baleen of the duck, if you would, if you would think is their filtering mechanism. They're, they're wider, they're, they're wider apart than a wild mallard. That means small seeds they can, they cannot filter small seeds. They're coming out as they, as they feed. Why does that matter? Well, you've got this little tiny bird, the much smaller bodied bird that can no longer eat wild seeds to, to most of the extent. I'm not saying they can't eat them completely, but they're not going to filter them efficiently like a wild bird is. And let's say you're in New York and you have a project and you, you take a, a golf course and you turn it into a beautiful pond with beautiful seeds you've actually decreased the carrying capacity of that duck because it can't actually survive on that habitat as well as what you are considering it is, which is a wild bird, but it is not. Phil, something that occurs to me here is you're talking about maybe decreased ability to, of these game farm mallards to filter out small seeds. I also kind of wonder about how that would relate to aquatic invertebrates. And so that's an incredibly important source of protein, as we know. And it seems logical, right? That it might impair their ability in that regard as well. That is absolutely correct. And I hope that, uh, I've partnered with, uh, Mike Schumer out of SUNY ESF and, uh, Brian Davis out of Mississippi state. And we're about to start, we're hoping next year about to start captive breeding trial, captive trials where we're going to be feeding these things, uh, everything from big seeds to little seeds, inverts and everything in between to actually test that hypothesis of uh, a feeding efficiency between these two birds, wild mallards and domestic, these game farm mallards, as well as a few of their hybrids. So we're going to get after this mechanism because if they can't actually filter feed, then if you move those types of traits, let's say to the prairie potholes, and these females are no longer able to eat seeds, and more importantly, uh, inverts during uh, incubation and so forth, you're going to start to see population declines that, that are potentially similar to what you're seeing in the Atlantic Flyway. And it may not necessarily be in the uh, survival mode, but maybe they are less uh, 
maybe they are less productive. Maybe they, because they're not as efficient at foraging, maybe they can't initiate a nest as early. We know the earlier nests are more successful or brood uh, hatched earlier are more successful and all those types of things kind of play into it, right? Yep. Yeah, no. And a couple other key characters of these game farm mallards that are great in captivity, meaning they dump a whole bunch of eggs, don't actually watch them. They can they can dump eggs for a very long period of time. So they're using up all that energy store constantly, but that's okay because they're being fed Purina Chow. And so you've got, you've got these birds that are less attentive, uh, making a bunch of eggs. Potentially a lot of them are not viable or less viable. But even so, are they going to even be viable if mom's not even there to incubate them? Probably not. And so you've got a lot of these characteristics that, again, are great in a captive setting where it's like you walk in, you've got a bunch of eggs, you put them into an egg incubator, and voila, you've got a bunch of birds. But that just doesn't work in the wild. Very interesting. Um, so, Tom, I'm coming to you now with the important question of what this means for eastern mallards and perhaps perhaps start with setting up um, the eastern mallard, uh, our, our understanding of eastern mallard population trends uh, and kind of how Phil's findings, Phil's research sort of intersected with the concern for eastern mallards. Yeah, I'd say an intersection is a, a good word. Within the past several years, population managers, um, state waterfowl biologists in the Atlantic Flyway that are members of the Atlantic Flyway Council and the Fish and Wildlife Service have detected a negative trend in the population trajectory, uh, but not for all eastern mallards. It's mainly the mallard population that originates from, say, all oh, the northeastern states, maybe from Maine over to Pennsylvania down to, say, New Jersey, something like that. So the population trajectory there has been negative, and the decline has been, if I remember correctly, nearly 50% from know, five or 10, 15 years ago. So when you see something like that as a population manager, that's a clear signal that, hey, man, something's going on here. We have to see if we can understand what's driving this population in a negative fashion. The management response initially to that, because it's really the only lever that the, the population managers have to pull is to contemplate a reduction in harvest. And they don't know for sure if harvest is even the problem, but it is the one thing that they can do to, to maybe reduce the slope of the negative slope of the population. And so as Atlantic flywheel hunters know well now, the recently past year or two, the limit has been reduced from four mallards to two, and I think two includes one female. So that raises concerns amongst hunters. You know, their satisfaction goes down, and also some of them have real concerns. You know, these folks are conservationists. Many of them invest in leases or have clubs in which they invest great resources to manage habitat. Some of the concerns we hear based on, you know, declining bag limit, reduced bag limit if it persists for quite a while is that we may lose hunters. We may lose habitat that was managed by hunters. And so then you would put yourself potentially anyway in sort in sort of a negative feedback loop that would be even further detrimental to a population. Not to mention the fact that the last thing we can afford to do right now is lose hunters because we've lost about 50% of them since, oh, say the late 50s. We've gone from about 2 million down to 1 million across the U.S. So we have this uh, complicated, what I would call an adaptive problem, meaning it's kind of a problem for which solutions aren't apparent. You know, the management community over there has 
has a number of hypotheses. Overharvest is something you always want to look at as a potential driver. Um, you know, did something change in the habitat that's out there that's causing poor nest success? Is it what Phil and his team have identified that it's a, a maladaptation through, you know, structural build morphology that just enables these birds to be less productive or causes them to be less productive. And the bottom line is right now that the Flyway Council and the Fish and Wildlife Service are amidst efforts to try to understand what's driving this population, whether it's up or down. In this case, it's down. That's the first thing they need to try to isolate and understand is what contributes to the declining population. Until they sort that out, their only, again, their only lever to pull has been to reduce the bag limit. The other thing they did, however, which was really favorable, and I really commend them for doing this uh, out there in the Atlantic Flyway, had they just set season length and bag limits on the mallard population, with that decline, hunters would have been facing a pretty dramatically shortened duck season. So what the technical council, the technical members of the council and the flyway councils ultimately did and the service agreed to do was to base season lengths on the population trajectory of the five other most commonly harvested species in the Atlantic flyway and then isolate the mallard and manage them independently of that. So that enables hunters to still maintain at least, you know, for now the six, 60 days and, and six duck limit. But because mallards like Black ducks actually are now managed independently. Their bag limit is, I think currently they're both set at two. Whether or not they stay there will depend upon their population trajectories and what exactly they learn in this investigation of, of these uh, various hypotheses. Um, the other thing that becomes important, however, is something that Phil hit upon. You know, to a hunter, to most hunters, presumably, as mallards are flying and circling and working your decoys, you're not going to be able to pick out uh, these structural differences. A mallard is going to look like a mallard to 99.99% of the hunters, whether it's its origin is game farm genetics or wild type Western North America genetics. However, if the game farm genetics have or can lead to inferior traits, uh, maladaptive traits that Phil hit upon, and if those traits then begin to spread westward to our native uh, population of mallards, then we have a whole different can of worms to resolve, right? Now we have multiple flyways engaged. We have three western flyways that predominantly, not entirely, but predominantly harvest uh, mid-continent mallards or western population of mallards, which is a whole separate uh, Pacific Flyway population. If we started to see declines related to what is what would in effect be hybridization of game farm mallards with wild type North American mallards, then one be, gets a really naughty problem. What do you do with that? Because then you're, or can you even do anything with it? Because the fact is, these mallards are here. Their populations are established. They aren't likely to go away. And so all of that bears, and that's what, that's what I mean when I say we have a, an adaptive problem. It's one for, for which there are not easy answers, sometimes no clear answers. It's certainly something that we'll have to watch and monitor in the science community to include geneticists. We'll have to carefully monitor, assess, and see if, in fact, we start to see entryways of, of game farm genetics into our quote-unquote native 
mallard population? And if we do, can we detect or do we start to see signals relative to the, you know, the things that we can typically measure, um, nest success, nesting propensity, clutch size, so on and so forth, body condition. If we start to see those things at really larger scales, then we may have a bigger problem on our hands than, than just what's going on in the Atlantic flyway. And I don't want to alarm anyone unnecessarily because all of this is relatively new and how it plays out is not really well known nor well understood, but certainly requires the attention of the waterfowl research and management community. To follow up on that a little bit, Tom, I seem, I think I read somewhere or maybe it was part of a discussion that that I had was uh, perhaps it might have even been Phil. We were talking about what has been the trend in game farm releases in the Atlantic Flyway. And I think, I think my memory says that they've actually uh, decreased. I think Phil mentioned that back in the 1920s, they were maybe 500, what has been maybe documented or known was somewhere in the, in the neighborhood of 500 or 600,000 uh, per year. And that might have continued to that level, I don't know, into the mid late 20th century but now they're at about 200,000 a year as best we understand is it logical to craft as one of the hypotheses for why eastern mallards at least in the US have declined is that perhaps we I mean, is just simply because of those declining uh, releases of game farm mallards I think it should be in the list of plausible hypotheses that should be investigated the nature of mallard releases vary state by state some states don't allow it at all Florida, for example, I think it is illegal to release mallards um, for any purpose. Other states continue to do so through a permit process, and then other states don't regulate it at all. So what would have to happen in that sense would be the science community and management community would have to, to really get a handle on just how many birds historically were released to the, as, to the best of our ability, but more importantly, how many are being released right now. And yeah, I think it's plausible if you know we see a decline in the areas that maybe mallard populations resulted from these game farm birds being historically released over, over decades. If you suddenly stop supplementing that population and those birds don't survive or reproduce as well in a wild type setting, that's a plausible, to me anyway, a plausible path to explore as to contributing to the declining trend that has been detected. Now, typically when, when we see in, in any wildlife species, when we see a declining trend, oftentimes it's not a single uh, cause or single variable that is driving that tends to be multivariate. So won't surprise me if this one is the same way and that there are multiple contributing factors. But I think the, the point you raised is one that should be in the mix of those considered as potentially contributing to the trend that's currently being seen out in the Atlantic Flyway. I think you're you're absolutely right. So the the problem is usually by the time we actually see this at a population level, and there's been really nice uh, modeling done with this uh, for with by geneticists, uh, genetic modelers. Um, they were looking at this effect of as as domestic animals breed with wild animals. What you typically see initially is kind of a boom, and then a very gradual bust. And it takes a long, sometimes it could take a very long time. And it's all uh, a, a corresponding to the 
to the pot to the wild the the population size of the wild uh, individuals in that area. The larger the population size, the longer it takes for this negative effect to come into play. The smaller the population size, the faster it happens. So in general, this trend has probably have been happening since probably since the fifties or sixties, and we only really detected in the nineties late 90s, early 2000s, and, and today, as it, as it continued to kind of this, this nice slot, consistent slide, is because we're, we finally hit that kind of like that spot where, there, where all of the things happen together, where the population, where we've lost enough of the wild gene pool, that everybody's kind of crappy on the landscape, that you've decreased the amount of crappy individuals you put out onto the landscape to supplement that population. Maybe there's been some habitat changes that have a, a, a arisen to decrease carrying capacity of that type of mallard or something like that. And all of those impacts potentially have this sort of, like as Tom alluded to, an additive effect of mul- this multifaceted additive effect that's, that's causing the decline. The perceived decline, at least. This has been a fascinating topic. My, I'm sure that we have that we're leaving something out. Tom and Phil, I'm going to give each of you a, a, a chance to provide any final, any closing remarks here. But, uh, but I just want to say to to each of you, thank you very much for spending your time. We've been doing this for close to three hours now. Just kind of give people a. Uh, some insight into the, actually what's happening here. We've been sitting down for three hours doing this uh, this discussion, and uh, so uh, we're at the end of it. And so, with that, uh, Tom, I want to start with you. Give you any any uh, give you an opportunity to make any final remarks for all of our listeners, but especially for our listeners who happen to reside or hunt mostly in the Atlantic Flyway. You know, I think that everybody understands how frustrating. And how frustrated you are, the, the Atlantic Flyway Consuls and Fish and Wildlife Service who have to make these hard decisions understands that cutting bag limits is really frustrating to hunters. And alternatively for the Fish and Wildlife Service and technical section Atlantic Flyway Consul states, it's frustrating not to have immediate answers. But these kinds of problems are really naughty and they'll take a little time to sort out. So I would ask folks, you know, to really let the science work through the process here. And hopefully in relatively near future, some answers will be apparent. And at that point, perhaps the service and the flyway console will have firmer direction and, you know, maybe bag limits can be returned to to four, Uh, maybe not. But at least we'll have the science to support the management decision fully. And so patience is, is while frustrating, is really necessary here. And let's all hope for the sake of the resource that supports our waterfowling heritage that we can collectively as a waterfowl management community arrive at some answers and set the course where hunting opportunity is satisfactory to all of those hunters out there in the Atlantic Flyway. Thank you, Tom. And and Phil, now I want to go to you, but I also want to just kind of commend you for the work that you've done, that you and your, your partners have done. This has been, it's a fascinating story, uh, how Tom has referenced the Eastern Mallard issue and the frustration that it's causing to hunters there. But then also the the timing of the research that you conducted, the nature of, of what you did, and then your findings 
uh, as we said earlier, sort of intersecting with this other issue and providing some insights into another plausible hypothesis that without the research you've done, we may not have arrived there. And so I, I find it really fascinating that the timing of these things uh, kind of co-occurred. And again, commend you and your your students, your colleagues for the great work that you're that you're doing here and contributing to this this knowledge base to help us understand what's going on with with eastern mallards and to find a path forward. So I also just want to remind you, I, I know that through this conversation, you've referenced a number of your partners, but also want to give you an opportunity for any final words overall, and then also to acknowledge any additional partners that may have played a role in your work. Yeah, thank you. Uh, I want to just thank both Tom, before I forget, Tom and Mike for sitting here listening to uh, listening to me babble and everybody else who's uh, downloaded this podcast and listening to me babble. And, and I really, I'm always jazzed up about this conversation. I'm mostly jazzed up about this conversation because I'm, I'm a duck hunter too. And when I started looking at the findings and, you know, I, at the time, actually, I forgot to tell this story. I was living in Ohio and I had a little farm I got to hunt. Um, and I would just do uh, jump shooting uh, this, this Creek out there. And, and twice I shot a female and a male that just, these two mallards, I was just like, wow, that, these things just do not look right. And I'm in the middle of Ohio, no game farms around me as far as I know. And they just looked odd to me. And of course, you know, I'm, uh, thankfully I can, I can, uh, go all the way from shooting to genetics. I quickly did the analyses and lo and behold, they were actually, now I know what they truly are, are game farm mallards. And this has really gotten my wheels turning and why I, I was so, you know, happy that we were able to do this podcast and get folks listening is because as a hunter, this, this sort of goes against my own like hopes for this resource that is so abundant. We're not talking about an endangered species or a population that needs to get augmented because their size has decreased. We're talking about one of the most abundant and known ducks in the world and potentially being, I want to say, quote unquote, polluted by a potentially privatized duck. And that's, that's a conversation that needs to happen within the hunting community. I, for one, as a Western mallard hunter, wants to see big old Western mallards going over my spread, but potentially others are okay with it. And, and maybe in the future, we might be seeing, we're looking into a situation where, you know, uh, for us to see mallards, and I know folks in North Carolina and South Carolina already have this situation for them to see mallards. Somebody's got, might have to be putting them out. Um, but that's also a conversation that we all have to have. Uh, and if that's something that we want, but the timeliness of this ha was also really odd to me. It was, it was, you know, I was finding this, I was starting to hear about all these stories. It kind of worked to, all together at the right time right place kind of situation. And the story really came out. I'm really happy that I'm able to provide just a bit of science that, you know, for that people that can at least provide guidance to a, to a plausible hypothesis that's testable. I'm happy to say that we're going to be testing, doing further research on this in the coming, uh, as Tom said, it's going to be a coming years, unfortunately. And we're, and I'm always looking for both private and public partners that, that are also excited about this, but to end it, this research technically could not have been done if it wasn't for early, uh, uh folks at DU Canada and DU incorporated here in the U S and also the black duck joint venture seeing promise in this. Maybe they only really cared about the black duck, st the story, but, but it, in, in the end, because of them and the funding that they provided and all the hunters that support those organizations, uh, providing the funding, this, this work could not have been done. So I think all, all those partners and all the hunters out there that are, that, that contribute to it. Thank you, Phil. Uh, and again, for some backstage insight here, it is 
5.30 on a Friday afternoon, uh, 5.30 in, in central time zone. So time. That's, right. <laughs> that's right, central time zone. So um, I can I can safely and confidently say that when we conclude this, I'm going to be off work and I'm going to go grab an adult beverage and I'm going to enjoy the rest of the <laughs> evening and weekend. It's been three hours of, of fantastic information. Make no mistake about that. But uh, and, and so thank you, Phil, for sharing all of the great work that you've done, these insights. And thank you, Tom, as well. Thanks for joining the Ducks Unlimited podcast. Thank you. You bet. Thanks, Mike. We extend a very special thanks, a very big thanks to our guest on today's show, Dr. Phil Lavretsky and Dr. Tom Warman. We hope you have learned a lot about genetics and hybridization and, and what it means for mallards and mallard-like ducks all across North America as well as the world. We also thank our producer, Clay Baird, for the great work that he does, always does, with this podcast. He is the, he is the person that makes this show tick. Thank you for sharing your time with us, and we thank you for your support, passion, and commitment to wetlands and waterfowl conservation. Thank you for listening to this episode of the DU Podcast. Be sure to rate, review, and subscribe to the show, and visit www.ducks.org slash dupodcast for resources based on today's topics, as well as access to more episodes. Opinions expressed by guests do not necessarily reflect those of Ducks Unlimited. Until next time, stay tuned to the ducks. You and your dog are a team. Fuel is best in the field and in life with Purina Pro Plan Sport. Made for hardworking dogs of all ages, every sport formula starts with real meat as the number one ingredient and is specifically formulated to support strength and stamina. Try it today and see why Pro Plan is the official dog food of Ducks Unlimited. Learn more at ProPlanSport.com.